Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome to Stuff I Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio. And today we're doing another female first, which means we are once again joined by our good friend and coworker, Eves. Welcome, Eves. Hey, y'all. Yay! Always a pleasure. So happy to have you. Um, how, how are you doing? What's up? I feel okay right now. I'm like trying to make sure that I assess that question correctly every time somebody yeah, asks me. Yeah, I, I know. <laughs> okay. Like it's mm-hmm. been pretty dreary for these last couple of days um, yeah. in Atlanta. But I mean, it's nice. You know, I still gotten some hammock time in and <gasps> I mean, I'm doing what I can with the tools that I have. <laughs> I was say, did you do the read aloud? I know you did a an Instagram story about possibly oh, doing it, and I was oh trying God, to see. Yes. I was trying to keep keep up, make sure I wanted to be a part of it. I think I missed it. Did I miss it? <laughs> you did not miss it. Okay, so backstory here is that I come <laughs> across all sorts of like really racist and odd books, and like whenever I find one that's particularly strange or like funny, um, I like just like take pictures of them sometimes. And there's this one like that's about the old South, and it's like about the like Confederacy and. And and all those good things. You heard it here. I I, I recorded the. I, I did record it. I did do the the dramatic reading, but I I need to edit it. Okay. So uh, I gotta I gotta get in Premiere, edit it, and then I will post it. Okay. All right. So for so our listeners, be on the lookout. You better be following Eves on Instagram so you can get that because I'm yeah. I'm quite excited. Yeah. To be to be honest, like Annie, you asked me how I am, like. That's one of the things that gives me joy. Like, as long as I'm able to continue creating things that I just, like, want to create. Like, I have absolutely no reason to do it. But, like, so much crap is going on in the world right now that, like, if I can continue, like, storytelling Mm -hmm. and creating and, like, making odd things that fulfill me in ways that have nothing to do with work, then I feel a lot better. So Right. Oh, well, yeah. I'm excited, like I said. Like, I, I, needed, I needed to know. I'm like, did I miss it? I didn't miss it, did I? <laughs> no. I have a whole, I have a whole, a whole thing coming. It's going to have, like, stock video in there. Oh, <laughs> yes. Oh, wow. Yeah. I am so excited. I really am. Um, if, if, I, if I decide I have enough fun with it, I'll probably do it some more because I have more awful books that I'm sure I could pull something out of. And hopefully, well, it's not like anybody would care about it anyway, but. You know, it's not my I work, can't. so technically it's probably violating something, but... It's... Okay, yeah, so don't, don't tell us. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> listeners, don't tell yeah. where. Yeah, you know, who's keep it exactly between us what, on this but... public podcast. Right, on this, on, this, on this extremely public podcast, we're literally telling thousands of people that this thing is happening. <laughs> well, what I was going to say is I don't think there's much of a cross-section with your audience versus like people oh, yeah. who are really ride for the South and the Confederacy. <laughs> Honestly. I hope not. <laughs> so, I don't think so. I think they're on the wrong podcast if that's yeah, the case. Yeah, probably so. <laughs> yes. Well, that's exciting. I mean, I'm excited. to. I, I love a good dramatic reading. And I'm excited to hear your dramatic reading voice, Eves. I think I've heard it before, but I love a solid... I really hope there's a lot of Southern accent into it. Like it... it Oh, oh God! It's, Do you it's have a honestly, little bit of the antebellum Southern accent happening in there? Because I know well, it's all up in that. I, it's really bad. It's a really bad accent. I did do an accent, <laughs> and it's awful. So yes. it's yes. really like it's a bad. Like I was my like my husband was helping me out with it, and he was like, "Oh, like you know," <laughs> I was like, "I'm how have I lived in the South for so long and like not." Mm. 
Like, I don't know how to do a Southern accent. I'm like, I am. I was born in Columbia, <laughs> South Carolina and raised yeah. in Georgia. And somehow, somehow, I still do a caricature of the Southern accent. Like, I don't I know. I am the same. I, I am the exact <laughs> same. And a lot of times I'll get called in for auditions where they want a Southern accent. And what I think they mean is actually not a Southern accent. Oh, it's like the not. TV version of a Southern... But I can't even do that. Like, I just sound ridiculous. So I hear you, Eves. All you have to do is get me on my phone with my mother. And in the... Oh. There it is. (laughs) And it's not not cute Southern accent. There's no Southern Mm. Belle. It is Southern Appalachian Mountain accent. Right. And uh, Mm -hmm. if you get me going with my parents, it gets a lot worse. It's really funny because I'm the immigrant of this group here. Like, I came when I was seven, (laughs) eight, like, seven years old, eight years old from Korea. I'm the one that's got the thick accent. (laughs) Somehow, you're graced with it. (laughs) That's sure. I will say that. (laughs) I just say, I do declare. And that's all I've got. (laughs) Um, (laughs) There it is. So you're welcome, listeners. One, maybe one day we'll just do bad Southern accents throughout, and then we'll lose all of our listeners. Right. Um, but not today, not today. I am so excited about the story you brought for this one, Eves. Yeah. It is just amazing, an amazing story. So who did you bring for us? Today we're going to be talking about Bessie Coleman, who was an aviator or aviatrix, as they so love to gender things, mm-hmm. um, is what they called her. So, yeah, she was the first Black American woman and Native American woman to earn a pilot's license. And she made a way, just like so many people that we talk about here who are pioneering um, women, like, made a way where there was no way before them. And that's definitely what Bessie Coleman did. Yeah, and and... To, to hint, to tease at what's to come. The way she got into piloting, I related to so much. <laughs> and I was like, oh, this is... A, I would have been friends with you. Right. <laughs> really? Oh, yes. okay. So we have to hear about it when the time comes. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, story. essentially, it's sibling rivalry. Right. That's spite. what I... Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the two I, I can, thing. You know Oh, what? I can relate. Just a small bit. Like, she had to be a big influence to Amelia Earhart. Like, when I was reading the timeline, I was like, yeah. oh, dang. Like... Even though that's the, that's the bigger name, mm-hmm. she predates and did some amazing things before Amelia actually became a part of this group. So I was like, huh, she is yeah. a trendsetter. Definitely. I think oh, that yeah. the thing that, that people have brought up in talking about her story and that it can come to be seen after, you know, we talk about her story and everything is that she might not have gotten as much recognition as she earned um, during her lifetime from the people who, there were people who supported her and who encouraged her, but um, a lot of the commemoration of her came after her lifetime, even though that she was a trailblazer and a pioneer while she was alive. So, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm excited. Yeah, shall we get into it? Let's do it. Cool, cool. So she was born January 26, 1892 in Atlanta, Texas. She was one of 13 children, though some of those children didn't survive through childhood. Um, Her parents were George and Susan Coleman, and her mother was a domestic worker. Her father was a sharecropper, and her father was also part Black and Native American. So when she was around two years old, her father moved the family to Waxahachie, Texas. So there he bought a little bit of land around a quarter acre and he built a home for them. But in 1901, her father decided to move back to a reservation in Oklahoma, his home state. And the way they presented is like, you know, he was dealing with, obviously, as so many Black people were in the South, 
um, dealing with a lot of racism, dealing with discrimination, and he wanted to make a better way for himself. So he went out there to the reservation. He moved without his family to hopefully, hopefully, <laughs> there's it's like you can't escape it, like literally anywhere yeah. in the world, but to hopefully face less discrimination. And the family stayed in Texas. So Bessie went to a segregated one-room schoolhouse as a child, and she had to walk four miles to get to school. And I feel like I hear this so often. Like, I also feel like I'm pretty privileged as a suburban kid who could get on a bus in a certain time, you know, and like go Mm -hmm. to school. But I hear so many stories from my family, you know, from other people's families talking about, I walked this dirt road Mm -hmm. this many miles and it took me this long to get to school. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. I'm staying at home. (laughs) But it's like that, that, that's the case for so many people back then. Um, And also the case for just other people who have long treks, you know, to be able to get to have an education when yeah. when that even comes to, like, having to get on this bus to go to this bus to go to this bus. Mm-hmm. But anyway, that's one of those, like, you know, I feel like really storied things to say, this person walked this many miles to get to school. But that is yep. what she did. And once she got to school, she was kind of known for being good at math. And her mother picked cotton. Um, she washed laundry. Over those years, she had really a lot of domestic work jobs. Um, she did that to support the family, and Bessie would help out in those ways. And she would also run the household when her mom was at work. Sometimes she even missed school to help take care of her younger siblings. And yeah, so that work, you know, taking care of family, raising family, um, all of that, you know, to be able to make a living and also to live with some sort of comfort at the time were things that she grew up. And we don't have to, I mean, obviously, I don't want to make any assumptions, but like this was a certain time in the United States. This was the early 1900s, um, late 1800s to early 1900s. So obviously, discrimination, racial trauma, racism, like all of that was part of the environment that she grew up in. Um, So yeah, so she started saving money through her work to further her education. And in 1910, she enrolled in a preparatory school at the Agricultural and Normal University in Langston, Oklahoma. So she was there for like a semester and she ran out of money pretty quickly. So she left the school, went back to Texas, started doing laundry to be able to make money and support herself. But after a few years, she decided to leave life as a domestic worker and she joined her brother, Walter, in Chicago. So this is around the time you were talking about she was getting some of that influence from her brothers who were coming back from war, who were telling all these stories about France and about the things that women had in France. Wasn't thinking about, well, a little bit like aviation may have come into some, in some ways to influence her, her reading about it, her brothers telling her about it. But when she got to Chicago, she first pursued like manicuring. She trained as a manicurist, took a job at a barber shop and did manicures there. But these brothers who had come back from the military were really influencing her. So while she was working as a manicurist, one of her brothers came back, you know, talking all these things about what it's like overseas and teasing her about her job and saying that women in France had so many more opportunities, but like Black women didn't have those opportunities in the U.S., women in France could fly and Black women in the U.S. would never be able to fly. And so she was getting influenced in that way from all these stories. And so, like, as you said, Annie, um, you said you have something similar happened to you. What is, what's that about? Oh, 
Oh, oh my gosh. Well, I just relate so much to sibling rivalry because I, I have two brothers and we just, oh, we were very, very competitive. I usually didn't play all these pranks, but they played a lot of pranks on me. Mm-hmm. But I've, I've often said, for better or worse, I'm somehow, I, I would say I'm kind, but I'm very spiteful. And so, like, if someone told me, if one of my brothers was like, you're never going to be able to do this, <laughs> I don't care if I want to do it or not. <laughs> now I'm going to do it. <laughs> like, I just, I have many instances of things that I've learned or, like, hobbies that I've picked up or skills that I did because my brothers told me I couldn't do it. And they would play, <laughs> like, the, you know, girls can't do that mm-hmm. kind of thing. And I'd be like, nope, mm-hmm. I will do it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You also were good at math growing up. So I feel like this is one more part of the story. Oh. Yeah. That you could have been good friends, maybe schoolmates. I related to her so much. I was like, yep, I will learn a language. I will go to a different country. (laughs) Oh, spoiler alert. Um, (laughs) I just, I love that so much that she's like, her brothers are like, oh, you can't do it here. And she's like, oh, really? (laughs) That's also her attitude in everything, not just against her brothers, like society in itself. She's like, watch me. Yeah, I will go to great lengths to prove you wrong. Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. That's cool. I like that that connection is there. <laughs> we have some more of this amazing story for you listeners, but first we have a quick break for a word from our sponsor. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. So yeah, like Annie said, she did decide to pursue a career in aviation. She wanted to learn how to fly. She wanted to get a pilot's license. And obviously there wasn't precedent for that for Black women in the United States at the time. And it was still really early for white women in the United States as well. There were white women aviators. um, And it, it was in 1911 when Harriet Quimby became the first American woman to earn a pilot's license. She was a white woman. But women pilots were still few and far between, and there weren't any Black American women who had a pilot's license yet. She applied to aviation schools, um, but her applications in the U.S. were rejected because they didn't want to teach a Black woman. There was Robert S. Abbott, who comes up in her story as a person who is a benefactor, who supports her and encourages her throughout her journey to become an aviatrix. You know what? I'm I'm using gendered aviatrix here just because I like the way it sounds. I'm yeah. not like I just yeah. <laughs> It sounds like a different thing than aviator. Yeah. Like it, it, aviatrix sounds like you're yeah. doing you're above like it's a step above aviator or something. Like it, it, it feels does. like it's like the uh academic version. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I, I mean? Get, like it's like yeah. a professorship that's beyond just knowing <laughs> yeah. aviation. Oh, I created this. <laughs> it reminds me of dominatrix too. So that's yeah. I'm choosing to, I'm choosing to flip back and forth between the two. <laughs> hey, I like it. It's a good word. Just a hit. Yeah. So he was the editor and publisher of the newspaper, The Chicago Defender, which was a Black newspaper. He was Black. And he was friends with her, supported her, and she told him about her dream of becoming an aviator, and he really supported that. And he suggested that she learn French and apply to flying schools in France. And she did just that. She saved her money. She got money from people to help finance her goal of going overseas to learn to fly. 
And then in November of 1920, she left the U.S., went to Europe on an ocean liner. And once she got to France, she enrolled at a school of aviation there. She learned to fly under French and German instructors, and she learned to fly a Newport Type 82 biplane. So they were rough. Obviously, these were early years. There wasn't a steering wheel or brakes, just a like big wooden stick to control the plane and a rudder bar under the pilot's feet. And yeah, she went through school and she got her pilot's license on June 15th. 1921 from the World Air Sports Federation, and that enabled her to fly around the world. So that's her first, you know, she she does that in a different country. And when she gets back to the U.S., there is a little bit of press about her. But as she's over there, you know, who knows what's going on um, in the U.S. But at this point, that's when she becomes the first Black American woman to get a pilot's license. She spent a couple more months in France before she did go back to the U.S. getting some more flying lessons, but she returned in September, and there were Black newspapers and industry journals that wrote about her. They had they touted her as the first Black woman to become an aviator. Um, I love, <laughs> again, with the wording, like they had headlines like, first Negress aviatrix, <laughs> and uh, reported that she planned to start exhibition flying in the U.S. pretty soon. But, you know, she realized she couldn't make, like, how am I going to make money from flying now that right. I know how to fly? <laughs> Which is mm-hmm. always the thing. Um, and I love that she just, like, without abandon, like, went for it, you know, and was like, mm-hmm. got back and was like, oh, no, I need to figure out how the hell I'm going to make money from this. <laughs> but, yeah, so she realized that she had to become a barnstormer to make money flying. And so barnstorming was something that was popular in the U.S. in the 20s, in the 1920s. And that's when pilots would perform stunts on airplanes. That this kind of came about with planes specifically because after World War ended, there was all these pilots who were trying to figure out a way to make money now. They had they wanted to figure out what to do with this thing that they love how to do. Um, and the U.S. also had surplus airplanes. So they would go to rural areas and they would do stunts and air shows. And they would make a little money through that. They would fly through barn doors. They would walk on airplane wings. And of course, over time, you know, things became more daredevil-y. Mm-hmm. Like the stakes were upped. <laughs> They're like, oh, that's enough of flying on airplane wings. You know, now it's time to parachute, you know, all this stuff. And right. became pretty competitive. Um, and it was an area that was open to women and to Black people in the U.S. And so this meant that, obviously not meaning that there were no impediments, you know, to being able to become <laughs> To be able yeah. to fly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, she went to a different country. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, but this meant that Bessie would need more lessons. So she went back to Europe, learned more in the Netherlands, France, and Germany. And she stayed there for some months and then was back in the U.S. by August of 1922. She made her first appearance in an air show in New York in Long Island. That was sponsored by the Chicago Defender. There was a 1922 article about the event that said she was, quote, the greatest flyer of her sex in the world, which um, was a bold statement. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) But yeah, they kind of played up the event, you know, like needed to get people to come as you often needed to do in fields that was that were so competitive. There were other pilots in the show and she soon went to Chicago to perform again. She did stuff stunts and tricks in her flying, like figure eight. She did loops and other kinds of tricks. 
And as she did exhibition flights, there were more newspaper articles on her. And of course, something like press is important in creating, you know, the mystique around you and gaining an audience to be able to have spectators at your events, uh, especially as a Black woman. Um, obviously, oh God, like to say this even is like, this is this is what happens so often, but, but the, the novelty in being the Black woman <laughs> mm-hmm. was part of her story. But yeah, to attract attention and to pick up press, she still had to play her character up. So the Black press printed a lot of praise about her, but their mainstream white-owned press still didn't give her as much attention. So flying, trying to make a way there, figuring out how she was going to sustain her life and be able to put food on her table through that. But she did, at one point, decide to branch off into acting. She was offered a role in a film called Shadow and Sunshine um, that would be produced by the African-American Seminole Film Company. And she did accept, but she ended up backtracking on that acceptance and turning down the role because uh, basically she wasn't here for the role that it was. The opening scene, she was going to be in raggedy clothes. She was going to have a walking stick and a pack. And that kind of depiction of this like wide eye, like ignorant, you know, type of girl showing up in New York she wasn't here for. She found it degrading and she didn't want to do the quote unquote Uncle Tom stuff is what she said. Um, And there were people at Billboard and at the film company who denounced her. She, there was a film critic and a columnist, J.A. Jackson, who said, quote, Miss Coleman is originally from Texas and some of her Southern dialect and mannerisms still cling to her. He also said that the actor replacing her was experienced and has, quote, unmistakable culture. Oh. Yeah. So um, (laughs) clearly that drew a rift between her and the producers. And that pitted her as the angry, the out-of-line Black woman, you know, who wasn't respectable or smart enough, wasn't polite enough, wasn't, you know, good enough. And, like, it was unnecessary for her to act the way that she did, even if she felt that that was something that she had to do on principle. So yeah, she didn't get another film role after that. Um, That could have made her a lot of money, which is something that she needed. Like that comes up a lot in her life. Well, of course, like we all need money, but like, you know, to be able to fulfill her dreams, that could have been something, a path for her to be able to sustain herself better than just like a mode of living that meant, you know, I can live, but there is no comfort and I can't necessarily fulfill all my dreams. But that was okay. You know, she had other goals too. She still, of course, loved flying and she was fulfilled in that way, but she also wanted to open a flight school for Black students and she needed the money. So she worked for Coast Tire and Rubber Company in California. She used that money she made to purchase a biplane because she also wanted to own her own plane. Um, and she did. She she achieved that. It was an old Curtis JN4 that was $400. Here's a part of her character. Like, she often lied and exaggerated her story, you know, to kind of up her appearance and, you know, make things look better on her end. And she told reporters when she got that that she ordered three planes rather than one. Um, when she told him she wanted to open an aviation school. And so she would say things like this when she thought it would work in her favor. 
and to help her get the things done that she wanted to get done. Like, for instance, she would also say there's also instances of her saying that she was younger than she actually was. Like, when she was 32, she would say she was 23, you know, (laughs) or things like that. But she, though this paid off and did get her attention, she didn't necessarily have the best reputation with everyone. And some people viewed her as temperamental, and that also the stories she told would just sometimes mess up plans for her appearances. Like she would do double bookings and stuff like that. And she also fired managers, several managers over a short period of time. But after she did buy the plane, she, the first instance of kind of like a tragedy in her life, well, that's yeah, like something that like definitely was bad in her life. Like she was flying from Santa Monica to Los Angeles when the plane crashed, it stalled and crashed. And so she was unconscious when she was rescued. She spent some time in the hospital because she broke her leg and she broke some ribs and had like other harm done to her in other ways. And she was released after a few months, but she got a cast on her leg and and got out. The plane was destroyed. So, you know, she worked hard to get yeah. to buy the plane, but then it was destroyed, so. Yeah. And I keep thinking about how at this time, as you said, flying was pretty new and these planes were just thinking about the what must have been very exhilarating, but also very scary and that they yeah. could just, the engine just gives out on you. Right. Yeah. And she could have easily died right then. Looking at the yeah. timeline for a lot of the young pilots, it wasn't long. <laughs> yeah. And it was like a continued uh, pattern for all. And I'm like, yeah, those airplanes, I just cannot imagine the yeah. death-defying trap that it must have been. <laughs> yeah. Seriously, the the barnstorming didn't last long. You know, all the, like, more regulation and, and mm-hmm. that, I mean, it was such a off-the-cuff, like, daredevil type of situation that that, that era didn't last super long. Mm-hmm. Um, and I couldn't imagine walking on a plane's wings. Like, I, I mean, I feel yeah. like this, this is coming from a 2020 vantage point of, like, you know, mm-hmm. there's passenger flights are so safe and we're so used to you know, we're so used to that. We're so used to driving and there's so many safety improvements that have happened And when it comes to all of the transportation mm-hmm. <laughs> that like, you know, looking back, I'm like, I wouldn't have stepped foot in one of those planes, okay? <laughs> like, I am good. I wouldn't have stepped foot in one. I wouldn't have tried to learn to pilot one. And I definitely wouldn't have tried to be on the wings while I was trusting somebody else to pilot right. one. Right. I think I would have gotten in one. I don't think I would have gotten on the wings. <laughs> But I'm somebody who's like, ooh, <laughs> let's try this thing. That's probably very dangerous. Well, yeah. you are a daredevil yourself. I, I do know that about you. <laughs> it's, uh, that's what they call me, <laughs> daredevil Rees. <laughs> daredevil Rees, I love it. <laughs> yep. We do have some more for you listeners, but first we have one more quick break for Word from Responsive. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. So she ended up going back to Chicago and she did have notoriety there, but she wasn't necessarily monetarily wealthy. Um, She made enough money to live. So she went back to Texas in 1925 and giving lectures became something that was a big part of her life um, that did help make her money. 
She gave lectures and prepared for more flying demonstrations. And a note here that over this time she'd been touring, doing these flights, um, she wouldn't fly in front of a segregated audience. So that was one of her demands. She said she wanted everybody to enter through the same gate, and that often happened in the, when she was flying in the North. Um, but her first show in Texas was on Juneteenth in 1925, and it was segregated. So there were plenty of times where she did get people to make these concessions when it came to having integrated shows, but that didn't happen on her first show in Texas. And she did go on to do more shows in the Houston area, and and she did more lectures as well. So during those lectures, she would encourage Black folks to take up aviation. She would also show clips of her flights. Um, and she parachuted from a plane herself for the first time in September of 1925 at an air show in Texas. So she continued touring the country. She went to Georgia and Florida and lectured. She would appear in theaters. She would appear in schools and churches. And But she did meet resistance in Florida for wanting shows that weren't segregated. Um, but yeah, so in Orlando, she did have success getting an integrated show. But all this time, she's touring and doing all these lectures she was also still dreaming about opening her aviation school. She was looking for financial support for that as well, so because that doesn't come without a cost. Mm -hmm. And so that's still in the back of her mind. And in her Georgia and Florida exhibition flights, she flew borrowed planes because her plane hadn't crashed. But she did end up earning enough money and getting money from a friend to buy another surplus Jenny, which is what they call the JM4, that she had found in Dallas. So there was William Wills, who was a mechanic and a pilot. He flew the plane, the one that she had found in Dallas, from Dallas to Jacksonville for her after she earned enough money to buy it. Um, the plane was in pretty poor condition, so it wasn't great. But she had been invited to fly at the 1926 May Day celebration in Jacksonville that was sponsored by the Negro Welfare League. And that was important to her because, as we discussed at the top of the show, like she got, she had support, but she didn't have a ton of support for to be able to raise money for the endeavors that she wanted to, to be able to attain. And so it was important to her because this is a notable Black organization. Um, that could potentially help her get closer to her dream of opening an aviation school. Unfortunately, like this hurt, she couldn't, she was never able to realize that dream because she died early. So this was on April 30th, the day before the event, William Wills, the mechanic and pilot, and then Bessie, they took the plane out for a test flight before the big show. He piloted the plane and she was sitting in the back and he had his seatbelt on, but she didn't have her seatbelt on because she was looking over the plane, trying to survey the fields below and get a sense of everything. And she was planning a parachute jump for the next day. But after they were in the air for not that long, the plane went into a dive and a tailspin and it flipped over and that threw her out of the aircraft and that killed her. Um, they were really high up. You know, William, he stayed in the plane, but he also died. It crashed and caught on fire. And after that happened, some people believe that William Wills made the plane lose control. They blamed him, said he was guilty of murder. But it ended up turning out that there was a wrench that was used to service the plane that had slid into the gearbox and made it spin. So, like, as you mentioned, like, already something that seems so dangerous to do in the first place, like, because there weren't so many 
stops for things that could happen, accidents that could happen like that as there are now. Mm-hmm. And also the plane was old and yeah, like, you know, was already in poor condition. Um, yeah, that something so small, you know, that could seem so insignificant as a wrench is something that can end two people's lives and, you know, yeah. affect so many others based on the people that Wills and all the loved ones for, for William Wills and for, for Bessie Coleman, you know, were affected by, by their deaths. And also all of the people who, you know, aspired to be aviators, um, all the people who didn't know who they would learn from Bessie Coleman um, were affected by her death. That was, you know, the end of her story, unfortunately. Like she lived a pretty, she only lived into her 30s. Um, and there were funeral services that were held for her, a couple in Florida and one in Chicago that Ida B. Welch presided over. And she was buried at Lincoln Cemetery in Chicago. And so, though it's been said that, like, you know, her achievements didn't really get the recognition that she had earned while she was alive, there were people who supported her, who encouraged her, to, who came to see her shows, who acknowledged the fact that, you know, she had to learn French. And then she went to France to study flying and then came back to the U.S. and talked herself up, which I'm an advocate for, actually. I'll just stop and <laughs> say here, talk yourself up, because yeah. if you don't do it, nobody else will. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean... <laughs> Like you said, you got to have, especially when she's trying to drum up like people to come to a show, you got to have this public persona. Talk yourself up all the way. I'm all for it too. Right. Yeah. I mean, we've been taught for so long that that's not okay. And it's indecent for women to do and see her doing it and doing it well and being able to succeed for the time that she could. That is inspirational. Do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yep. She had a lot of support at the funerals, though. So there were thousands of people that attended her Chicago funeral. And she's also been honored in many ways since. So she was on a stamp, a U.S. stamp in 1995. There were pilots who fly over her grave since, like, annually since 1931. Um, There were Black women pilots who started a club that named after her in the 1970s. And, uh, yeah, she's been honored, like, with street names and stuff like that. So her contributions to flight, you know, not just women's flight, all flight and have been recognized in ways since. So yeah, her story unfortunately ended early and I feel like it always really sucks to hear like somebody who cared so much about being a pioneer in an area, but not because like, I'm going to be a pioneer in this area. It's like, I just want to do this thing, (laughs) you know, wherever the impetus comes from, whether that's brothers who like are teasing you or whether that's like stories of you reading about and you just, you know, imagine that for yourself. Mm -hmm. Ended early for her. But um, yeah, I think that it's good to that we can talk about her today. and We do still know a little about her story. Yeah. uh, I mean, it's it's tragic ending. but I just respect so much of so much of what she did and how she just found a way. <laughs> she found a way to get what she wanted. And she did. It was a pretty short time all of this went down. Um, and she had these like morals that she was really uh, outspoken about or, or things that she just stood stood for and was this inspiration to a lot of people at large, but then women and black women. Um, yeah, I it was an amazing story. I'm glad yeah. we're talking about it. 
So um, do you have any designs, any plans to fly <laughs> now, Annie? I actually, I honestly, I'm not even lying. After I read this, I was like, I wonder. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if I could get a pilot's license. <laughs> um, oh, gosh. Well, okay, so... That's going to be... I'm going to hit you up for that during the apocalypse. If you do get your pilot's license, oh. can you please be on my team so you can fly somewhere if we need to escape? You're right. You're right. <laughs> I need to start uh, I need to start upping my apocalypse. Like, I love when you play video games. They're like, what character do you want to be? And you can look at all their skills, and it's like, can dive underwater, can yeah. fly plane. I need to be building up that uh, list. Yeah. Same. Same, same. Yeah. I think, I think I've got a pretty decent list already, but I'll add flight to it, Eves, and... <laughs> I'll be on your team. Great. I got to figure out my skills. I got to bring something to the table. Um, Maybe uh, you you and I can be the skill who actually find the people who are better at things than us uh, and bring it to the team. Oh, yeah, the scout. The scout. That is the scout. Yes. Make it sound official. Have have that. Uh I like that. I like that. Uh, Always thinking, always thinking, Samantha. Think smarter, (laughs) not harder. (laughs) Get someone else to think for you. Exactly. (laughs) I love it. Um, Yeah, I. She has inspired me to potentially (laughs) become a pilot one day. So her story is still having an impact, and that's great. Decades later. Yes. Yeah. Um, well, thank you as always, Eves. Uh, it's been a delight. Where can the good listeners find you? You can find me online. <laughs> you can find me online. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like hesitant to like, you know, tell people I'm on the internet because that means I have to be on the internet. But <laughs> you can find me um, online, Eves Jeffco on Twitter. Um, I'm also um on Unpopular, you can listen to me on Unpopular, the podcast about people in history who did really amazing, really provocative things. And you can also listen to me on This Day in History class, another podcast about things that happen in history and people in history. And you may hopefully learn something. <laughs> <laughs> definitely learn something. Definitely I'll come out strong and say it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for um, the support. Definitely check that out. You've got the read-along coming up. We teased the the... the I'm so excited. I'm so excited. Yeah. Listeners, go do that if you haven't already. Um, And if you would like to contact us, oh, you can. Um, Our email is stuffmediamomstuff at iheartmedia.com. You can find us on Instagram at stuffmomnevertoldyou or on Twitter at momstuffpodcast. Thanks, as always, to our super producer, Andrew Howard. Thanks. (laughs) And thanks to you for listening. Stuff I've Never Told You is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hold up. 